Welcome to Splunk Nice. Nice. The Splunk Podcast, that's all Splunk and no junk. This is season two, episode 26. And we've got a special guest, Jerry Pang, is joining us in just a few moments. But before he gets here, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, man. Yeah. I am. Uh, I'm excited. I'm about to go on a road trip with <gasps> family, like me and three kids and my wife in a minivan across the country, 20 states. This is starting to sound, when I say it all together like that, this is actually uh, starting to sound worse and worse the more that I talk. Is it fair to say someone is going to be driven crazy? It, that is possible. That is possible. What's the first song that gets played on the road trip? I don't know, but I know the song that we were just singing a minute ago. Black Eyed Peas? Yeah, but yeah. I don't know if that's the song that we'll be playing first or not. Well, I think we've question. just decided Actually, it needs to be. Yeah, I, I think... Um, That'll be the first one in the playlist. I mean, yeah. You think you think at one point you're required to listen to on the road again? We probably will because this is going to be a big road trip. I've never done one this long like this before. So yeah, and it's weird you're doing it all in a sedan. All not a sedan. No, it's actually a minivan. So it's tall. It's a tall sedan. But anyway, I'm excited. We're gonna be gone for like the month of June kind of thing. Mm. Um. I'll be working from the road. We'll see how that goes. Wow. I will not be attempting to record a podcast, but I don't know. It could happen. I mean, we could talk about that. Yeah. What, what's up with you? Um, I am dialing in today. I don't know why we say that. No one dials anymore. You're phoning it in. It's like That's I'm like phoning it in. Low effort. You know, you're yeah. Uh, I'm phoning it in from my personal machine. What's that? What happened to my work what laptop? Work oh, I'm glad you asked. Um, it was in a bag on a shelf. Mm -hmm. The bag also contained a, a smoothie in a okay. I'm enclosed container. Okay. Okay. I think we all see where this is going. I, I am starting to uh, understand the it's going. <laughs> I am a little confused as to why a beverage would be inside of a bag generally just on general principles yeah i like to live dangerously okay. uh because it was yeah i mean it was sealed closed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and uh yeah it was a bad call i guess to put it up high <laughs> <laughs> what, what is that called in uh in physics uh kinetic energy or, or something uh, uh, potential energy inevitability yeah so um a little bit of smoothie a little bit of smoothie on the laptop and um track or what did it boot up boot it up boot it up i had to do the nintendo 64 or nintendo cartridge uh, thing on all the ports clean them out with like q-tips and rubbing alcohol and stuff mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh some of those power ports and stuff could not get smoothie out. So there I am going <laughs> with smoothie shooting back into my eyes as I do it. And I'm like, yeah, this is pretty much what I deserve for being that dumb. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Well done. So then I took it to, uh, to the repair shop, mm -hmm. the local repair and shop. And, um, in that moment, 
I drop it off and the guy goes, so what's the password? And I'm like, deer in headlights. And he's like, I need to log in to make, to yeah. like validate. And, yeah, no. and I was like, yeah, I can't, yeah, I no. can't do that. Yeah. So I call up IT and I'm like, do we have a guest account I can enable? <laughs> and next thing you know, my phone's not working. It's not dialing out. Um, the laptop can't get on the internet because my phone can't become a hotspot. Mm -hmm. I would imagine the place has Wi-Fi, but that's not the decision I made. And so here I am, IT, you know, I got the phone on the neck, mm -hmm. talking to IT, trying to figure out how to enable it, getting error messages on enabling the guest account while um, they're saying, well, can you, what, what message does it say? So now I'm taking pictures with my phone <laughs> and sending it through Slack on the phone. Well, and mind you, I don't have a trackpad. So I'm doing this all keyboard commands and touch screen yeah. and uh, was not able to get the guest account going. And I was like, really? I just wasted like an hour of commute time uh, just to like walk home. And uh, fortunately I was able to use my technical wizardy and I found a super secret account that I re enabled. It was disabled. And um, that allowed me to uh, do what I needed to, but it was a very funny moment speaking of funny moments here comes jerry well he's joining on audio now i think he's, he's joining, joining on, on now i see jerry hi there we go. Birch. hey going? hey jerry we were just catching up about how things have been and we're really glad you're here because uh we got some really great feedback from some of our very passionate fans actually i wish i had the name and email queued up but i i closed everything with roger in seattle roger in seattle or is that just what we say for everything it's just the first thing that i thought of. i believe we got a call from sleepless in seattle mm -hmm. and sleepless said that um they want they want these things to be more technical yeah jerry uh, do you think you can help us make this just a eedy beedy bit more technical sounds good to me i'll do my best and you know thanks for having me you know on board today yeah yeah he jerry uh he hit me up a minute ago in slack and he said is there anything i need to do to prepare are there you know qu common questions that you ask and i didn't give him a thing i did not yeah. give him a thing so you got nothing so you're, you're cornered now no, well, the, the oh. whole thing about the, what we do though i mean the whole point here is that it is conversational so don't you worry. Yeah. Just make sure it's all splunk and no junk. And by that, I mean, half of our conversations are about like movies and junk. But we do. We're going to get more technical in this one. We promised. Yes. So Hal, I would, I would like, I nominate you. Hal, I choose you. That's sort of a Pokemon reference um, to, uh, to introduce Jerry. Okay. Because you're f more familiar with his work than I am. This is the first time Jerry and I, well, I mean, have, have met. What I'd rather do is have Jerry introduce himself. I mean, usually what we do, we start out, we say, so Jerry, welcome to the show. We are very happy to see you, you here. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, uh, you can go back, you know, like, um, uh, not birth, but maybe age four. <laughs> Oh, uh, no, no, no. Well, and just, just to follow the pattern. Now I nominated Hal, Hal nominated Jerry, Jerry, you have to nominate back to me. To no, introduce no, no. You. Just, 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 Jerry. 
Cherry, what's your origin story? Your story. Yeah, we do your orange. <laughs> your orange story. I am a developer by day and vigilante by night. <laughs> wow. I did not expect that at all. Or, or probably more developer at, at night nowadays. But ironically, you are always wearing a face mask during your vigilante work, but now everyone's wearing one, so you really blend in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So to again, thanks for uh, having me on board um, today, and to give kind of a background into you know kind of uh, my career. So, um, in terms of, uh, you know, my career, I've always kind of, uh, been in the area of distributed systems in the realm of computer science from my undergrad days, you know, I've done, you know, work with professors in that area of research and more specific, more specifically at grad school, I got into us kind of a more specialized area of distributed system known as distributed stream processing. Mm-hmm. So from there, you know, I done, you know, uh, a fair amount, a fair amount of research, written a couple of papers, went on to, you know, you uh, doctor. <laughs> I am, I decided not to pursue a PhD because, uh, you good. Know. Cause I have this injury here. I was really going to ask you about no, please no. Maybe I can write an app to, you know, tell you the answer, but I will not be able go. to there tell we... you the answer directly. <laughs> So in in college, you started to specialize in distributed systems and then mm-hmm. streams processing. And is, at what point did you kind of enter the workforce? What, did did we have the the pleasure to be that first one, or did you have a series of uh, spots before you hit Splunk? Were we? Unf- unfortunately, you know, Splunk was uh, not my not my oh. first job. You know, it's all right. I was, uh, I was, I mean, one of the reasons I decided not to, um, pursue a PhD is I had some opportunity to work at Yahoo to implement, um, some of my research. So I took that opportunity to, first of all, you know, make some money as a poor college student, you know, as well as actually, you know, make something practical out out of my more, more or less theoretical, you know, research. So what was, I mean, that's pretty incredible to, for someone to be like, Hey, you wrote a paper on this thing. Now we want you to make it. That's awesome. What was the paper or what, what, what's the gist of, of what you were uh, hired for the abstract please. No, don't. Yeah. So the the title is uh, resource aware scheduling and uh, uh, stream processing systems. Okay. So the gist is basically some um, more intelligent um, scheduling strategies that we can employ and distributed stream processing systems so that we can get, you know, higher throughput and lower latency. So it was basically, let me ask, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, just to make this material as accessible mm-hmm. as possible. Sure. We've talked about stream processing in other episodes in other contexts, but I'd like to know what a not PhD describes stream processing as. Sure. Um, so think about stream processing as, you know, uh, you know, just processing a continuous, you know, amount of data. Think about perhaps a good example would be tweets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at any point in time, someone could go to Twitter and type in a tweet, submit it, and, you know, it show up on the internet. Think about that as basically a continuous set of data, right? People are continually writing tweets. And what stream processing can allow you to do to say is, look, there are some 
bad folks out there, right? That's using dirty language or using whatever that's, you know, um, <laughs> that shouldn't be, you know, be allowed on, you know, Twitter. And we want to, you know, selectively maybe filter some of that out or so selectively flag some of it. So, you know, someone can make a decision on whether this questionable content should be, you know, displayed or not. Right. So that's a good kind of, um, um, uh, use of stream processing where you basically get, you know, uh, a live stream of tweets, you, you feed it into a stream processing system, it applies some algorithms on that, right? It could just be a simple filter, it could be some enriching, it could be whatever logic that you really want to kind of apply to that, and then produce some sort of results. So you can kind of view that as, you know, uh, kind of a basic, you know, uh, you know, use case of stream processing, uh, stream processing system. You know, there's, there's many other use cases. And what I just said, I just realized should not be construed as a way for me to, you know, censor people on Twitter or whatnot, but just as an example to say like, what can be done um, on, you know, with Twitter as an example, um, as an example data source. So, so to, to pivot to a different example than social networks, um, I guess like if I have, uh, if I'm like a, a commercial site, a commerce site, like an Amazon mm -hmm. or something or eBay and I have, um, transactions coming in, mm -hmm. um, th that, that, I mean, could anything be a stream of data? Yes. To be honest, I would say probably most things are streams of data, right? What a stream of data usually means is data with a time dimension attached to it, right? Some sort of time dimension. And almost every, all data, I would say, more or less are created in that manner, right? You're basically it, creating, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it, it, is I, it I fair to say that- here and, and ask, uh, I'm sorry, go, go ahead, yeah. Rich. Well, well, just like, um, I, I guess I never really th thought through this until now, but like, is it fair to say like a stream, a stream of data is like the, almost like the stateless, like the UDP of data, like it's coming in. I mean, not that it's like lossful, but, or lossy, but like the data is like coming in, it's not at rest. Is that the difference? Like stream yeah. with the opposite of it would be like data at rest, like data stored on, on a disc for historical purposes. Yes. So, um, that's a popular term to be used in the stream, uh, and, and, uh, the stream processing kind of community is, you know, data at, data in motion versus data at rest, right? So ah, data awesome. in motion is usually used as a term to classify, you know, stream processing. Um, though kind of my point was like, you know, uh, in, in reality, everything originates, I would say, um, in, as a stream of data, right? Data is always produced or generated in a continuous fashion. It's only an artifact that people decided to, okay, we're gonna just dump it all into you know, you know, a file into a file or storage to store it and then process it at a later time. But I would always, I would almost postulate that most, that most data, if not all data is actually always generated more or less in a stream fashion, as in it's continuous. It has a time, you know, it has a time element and it's, you know, uh, it's never ending, right? Just like, you know, uh, any sort of sensors, any sort of just like uh, transactions that you mentioned, it's, it's, it's continuous, right? You don't really have any sort of endpoint per se. Right? No, I see Hal raised his hand. Hal, yeah, do you have a I'm question, like, young man? Please, yeah, please, yeah. please. So um, I want to dive into where, how stream processing, why, why it became important. Before I do that, I want to just really quickly 
blow past like because uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I, I want to mm-hmm. just kind of note that after Yahoo. Um, you worked at Streamlio. Streamlio was acquired by Splunk. You did a lot of stuff with with Flink and Pulsar and some other distributed systems. And I want to get back into some of that, uh, but I want to just kind of quickly mention because I, I want I know that Pulsar is super important to you, so I want to focus on that in a minute. But mm-hmm. before I do that, um, why? Was it needed to focus on stream processing separately? Because I know what came before it was batch processing. What mm-hmm. limitations mm-hmm. were there that caused us to, to need to focus on a different uh, way? Anyone following uh, mapping this at home, we just mapped from the word stream to its successor, processor, and processing. Thank you. Yeah. You can That's lower a- your hand now, young man. Okay. <laughs> That's a very good question, Hal. Um, so... I think originally why batch processing came to be is it was uh, more easy. It was easy. It was easier to reason about, you know, I have a file, I'm going to do some sort of processing on that file. And then, you know, I'm done where I basically periodically, you know, run my program to do some sort of, you know, uh, processing on some static file and then, you know, I'm done. So that's probably, you know, the reason why, you know, batch processing came first and what people realized in that kind of model is, well, there's going to be some delay, right? And kind of, the re- you know, when I can get results, right? Because I'm either, you know, executing something, you know, executing some sort of computation or processing periodically, um, or I'm basically dumping stream data, right? Live data into a file, I'm batching it together, right? Um, and then, you know, that data basically has weighted in my in my file or storage for a while before I'm able to process it. Mm-hmm. So all of that time has, you know, elapsed, right, before I can actually get a result. And people realize, well, we can have we can get more opportunity, right? We can, we can, you know, if we're able to get results faster, we can take advantage of certain opportunities faster and maybe that will be advantageous to us. So that's kind of where, you know, stream processing comes in is look, you don't need to no longer, you know, wait a super long time before you get results, right? You don't need to dump it into a file and then, you know, at some sort of regular cadence, I'm going to have a program to process what I've dumped and then produce a result, right? I can get results. So it's more real time. Exactly. It's more real time. It's more, um, you know, uh, you know, you get faster live quote unquote live results versus, you know, more periodic results and people, you know, in general, I think people, nowadays especially you know as a technology has advanced have demanded i need fast i need results now right i need results now i'm gonna look at what is going on now versus oh this is what happened a day ago or you know two days ago or a couple hours ago people want results fast and because of 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 uh being able to you know get the results fast i'm able to make decisions faster and i'm able to take advantage of opportunities faster which leads to you know um maybe more profit or whatever, you know, other benefit that can arise from that situation. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. Where were the, um, I feel like you've probably been in the space, you know, maybe not at the very beginning, but, but maybe for the bulk of of this, because I feel like stream processing as a concept has probably existed for a while, but like the data processing needs that everybody has been using to process data, it used to all be batch. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you're moving into the stream model, I, there were probably some some scaling challenges or probably some things that had to be created that didn't exist to handle what what types of problems had to be solved in order to make something that would be scalable, robust, you know, acid compatible, whatever. 
Right. Just like you said, um, string processing is um, just like most things, right? It's not, it's not, uh, has been around for, you know, quite a long time. There's, you know, papers describing, you know, uh, processing, you know, a stream since, you know, probably a couple of decades ago. And there's been, I think technologies developed, um, you know, throughout the, you know, you know, last couple of decades around doing some sort of stream processing, but what really kind of the stream processing kind of we're talking about is stream processing in the realm of big data, mm-hmm. right. Which that has really, you know, kind of gone taken off only perhaps in the, last, you know, you know, decade or so last maybe five, five, 10 years. Um, so, so the, the difference between kind of the more traditional, uh, technologies I've kind of mentioned before and what we have now is look before there wasn't that much data, right. Thus, you know, uh, because, you know, people didn't even, didn't have so many, you know, technologies, you know, you know, accessible to them in their daily lives, that level, the, the, the level of data generation wasn't that large. So we can perhaps, you know, not, we can perhaps design simpler systems to process less data, even though it could be in a streaming fashion. But as, as we enter a kind of a more digitalized age and people start to generate more data, that's where we get into big data, right? That we have to develop systems that can process orders of magnitudes larger data than what existed before. And it started with batch processing and then basically got into stream processing. Okay. So that's a little bit about, yeah, that's perfect. I'd like to get into some specifics in, in terms of like some of the products projects in the industry. And I know yeah, sure. you worked with a lot of them, the Apache project or, you know, the kind of the overall organization, mm-hmm. I feel like they do everything. Yeah. You know, but sometimes yep. I look at, at the list of projects, it's like they do eh, three to 10 of everything. And, and it's some of them overlap. Um, and, and I feel like you've touched several of these in this space. Can you help me kind of unravel like, you know, Flink and Pulsar and Heron and like there's 10 different, you know, yeah. data processing solutions from the Ap- uh, Apache banner. Yeah. So there, there are quite a few um, overlapping projects in the Apache Software Foundation, but, you know, I don't think it's a, necessarily a bad thing. There's always, you know, a benefit for having, you know, a little bit of healthy, you know, uh, comp- competition. And the thing is, the reality is not all, even though some of these projects have overlapping features, they have their own kind of distinct features that make them kind of successful. So I originally, one of the, one of the, I think um, the big projects in the beginning for stream processing and the big data realm was a a Apache project called Apache Storm. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the project I originally kind of worked on and, you know, implemented my research on at Yahoo. So Storm was kind of the first generation of big data stream processing uh, platform that allowed users to basically uh, process large amounts of data and in, in, in a stream fashion and in, in a massively parallel kind of environment. Afterwards came, you know, stream processing systems such as uh, there was SAMHSA, you know, there was Flink, and there was also Apache Heron that we uh, also worked on at Streamlio, which came out of Twitter as their kind of, uh, you know, they, bre- they branded it as a Storm 2.0, a newer version of Storm with some, you know, improved features. So, um, all of these kind of um, have their own unique capabilities um, from from a from a feature perspective. I think they all kind of trace more or less maybe their lineage back to Storm as one of the more <clears throat> foundational projects that you know really gained popularity in industry for stream processing and really kind of um, led the way for stream processing and community. Mm-hmm. I think another <clears throat> monumental project is Apache Flink, um, which we also 
kind of, uh, which we also use today in SBS, the stream processing service as Splunk. Flink made some, um, I think, very, uh, uh, very uh, innovative features, um, created some really innovative features around how to, pro how to reason about time and how to reason about basically uh, when events or when data is generated and how to basically uh, process the data uh, relative to the time that it's generated. So there was a lot of features and work around, around that kind of, uh, around that functionality that really led, I feel like for, for the product uh, Patrick Flink to take off as well. So Kyle, you also mentioned projects like Apache Pulsar, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess I can talk a little bit about, well, what is the difference between kind of Apache Pulsar and Apache Flink, right? Those are not necessarily kind of competing technologies. Those are a little bit in different spaces. I think they, in a lot of technology stacks I see in industry today, they complement each other. Apache Pulsar is more, is a, is a publish subscriber system. You publish messages to the system and then you can have consumers that read message, you know, out the other side, or you can, another way to put it is, you know, you can have producers that publish to a channel or what we call a topic and Pulsar, and then you can have basically consumers on the other side read out that data. So there's a lot of use cases to uh, that can be served by Apache Pulsar, but one of them, and a, a very large use case, is typically used as a buffer for stream processing systems. So you would always front your stream processing engine with a message bus like Apache Pulsar that, you know, this is where live data will come in, and this is the buffer that will absorb those mat those spikes right that can potentially that happen like in case your systems compute can't keep up with the stream right yeah that's um uh, it's not necessarily can't keep up it's it can't keep up at a certain moment in time right right on 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 average your stream processing system needs to be provisioned in a way to basically keep up with your average kind of throughput on your average you know level of traffic but you know as you would imagine during you know uh, regular day matters, cycles. You know, yeah. Super Bowl happens event. a holiday, maybe in the morning, everybody wakes up and, you know, starts tweeting or whatever, right. Whatever events they can trigger these spikes and, you know, having a message bus in front of your stream processing system, you know, helps basically absorb these, these spikes so that it doesn't, you know, put undue stress on your stream processing engine. So that's so kind of as an assistant queue. Yeah. So is, exactly. is the job of the developer then, and at what point would you make a decision about, okay, what is the state of the queue? Um, we have a lot of latency because of a spike, for example. And, mm -hmm. you know, now we're, you know, we can't keep up. We're, we're, you know, 10 minutes behind of this system that, that has, you know, typically a, you know, and less than a second latency, that kind of thing. Where does that decision happen and what does a developer have to think about there? And by the way, can our first album when we form our musical group be named State of the Queue? <laughs> every episode, Jerry. This is nice. nice. I like that one actually. That that's a good one. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I'll add it to yeah. the stack. <laughs> to to answer your question, how um so in a in in a, in a situation where um let, let me first make sure I understand your question, right? So you're basically asking in a, in a situation where uh, we, ba where uh, the user, you know, are, are, is seeing higher than normal latency for their results. Is that correct? Like basically instead of a one second kind of um, expected latency, they're somehow seeing a 10 second latency right sure. before getting some results. Yeah. How can 
you know, us as engineers or whoever is basically, you know, responsible for these systems, like determine or debug the underlying problem. So <clears throat> there are, I can even you know, there, there, you know, I can, I can pick a concrete example if, if, if it would help the problem. It might help the listeners. Um, sure, why not? Off the top of my head, we have a stream of um, alerts. Okay. They're coming mm -hmm. from a variety of it systems. Uh, and these are, you know, state, they could be state changes. They could be alerts. And mm -hmm. these are coming from hundreds of, you know, endpoints, thousands, hundreds of thousands of endpoints. And maybe there's a monitoring system that was built around this. And, the monitoring system in order to have a, you know, there's probably a computer, you know, that's going to do something with that, that alert to understand if this is important or not. And then, you know, if, if it's important, there's going to be a human on the other end to do something about it, perhaps or not. Maybe there's some run book automation and all of this works until it doesn't work. And if everything breaks at the same time, then, then the whole system is going to strain because of, you know, the latency that's, that's introduced. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how, how do you combat that? You know, what, what are some, some challenges or you know, what, right. what do you do in that, in that kind of situation? So um, it's interesting that you brought up a monitoring system because for a lot of um, these, these kind of, uh, I would classify them as not hard failures, but like soft failures, right? Like you don't, not just your system just flops over and nothing, you know, gets through. It's more of a degradation in performance, right? Mm -hmm. A soft failure. So what really needs to happen in these situations is, is you have to have very good monitoring. You got have to have very good tools to tell you that these basically uh, non-hard failures are actually have happening. So typically, what would happen is you would define maybe some sort of SLA, right, mm -hmm. for your 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 data your your data processing. How how long how this is you know how long I expect the data to flow through the system? Maybe in this case it would be one second, right? And if I if my data you know periodically if my data starts missing that SLA then someone, you know, one of the engineers responsible for the system should basically start uh, looking into kind of, well, why are we missing that SLA, right? So the first thing is to basically define, you know, the SLA, the surface level agreement of what, you know, is the expected latency and then have the necessary monitoring tools um, in place to basically alert, you know, developers or, you know, engineers that, you know, uh, we are missing basically our service level agreement and someone should go investigate, um, uh, to see what happened but before i mean before all this i want to say like if you it, it, you in the beginning you know before we even have any of this in place like you really need to also uh calculate and provision correctly right your system to handle you know the load that uh you are expecting it to be what i mean is look if you calculate right determine that look i will have an average say you know throughput or the amount of data i need to process is you know, one gigabyte a second, right? You need to do the correct calculations and you need to do the correct math to basically configure and provision, you know, the message bus and the stream processing engine to be able to handle that load and then probably also have some room for, uh, uh, have some room, have some padding room so that we can absorb some higher uh, levels of traffic at times. So yeah. in the beginning, this this uh, this pre-calculation and this this provisioning process needs to be done in a, in a meticulous fashion to make sure that you know you will basically you know be able to handle the expected amount of load within the certain amount of latency. So that homework definitely needs to be done. And afterwards, obviously, there's always going to be it's always a best 
you know, an educated guess at the beginning before you actually run through the load, right? So that's where the monitoring comes into place where you have to have good graphs and good metrics that are emitted from basically different parts of these, you know, systems message bus, as well as, you know, stream processing engines for you to really, you know, uh, be able to have observability into what is going on to those systems and why certain things are taking longer uh, than, than, than usual. So I always, uh, when sizing things, uh, I always love leaning into percentiles. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, like when I would be working with customers to size like their Splunk deployments, I would say just to be very conservative, I'd say, okay, well, let's pick something like the 95th percentile. So maybe in a hundred days, you might go above that five times, but that's so anomalous that, you know, you should be fine. And so now, like you had said, like, you're not just going for the average because the average doesn't like, if you say the average plus some buffer, well, at what type of distribution from the average, do we need that buffer to be, to handle, you know, 90% of our work, 95% of our work. And that was, I think when playing with percentiles finally rang true to me. And I was like, Oh, now I understand the purpose of a percentile. Yeah, that's a very good point, Birch. And um, that's often uh, uh, that's often um, what we use in the stream processing world as well. In terms of, especially you know, um, one of the more critical things that we're concerned about in stream processing is latency. Right? Mm. Is we want to be able to process things fast, and we usually kind of quantify um, or qualify how how well a stream uh, system is doing by its basically percentile latency. So when we say maybe one, we, we expect a one second latency for, for, uh, for, for our requests, for our data, what you really kind of want is not necessarily an average latency because that could then be all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. One could be, you know, one, one latency could be, you know, 10 seconds and the other could be 0.1 and you average something out to be one second, but in, in a sense, like you get very high and very low. Um, so it's, 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 that's not a good situation. What you really want is, is exactly what you said is percentile latency. So a lot of, you know, when we benchmark stream processing engines and other stream processing platforms, it's what it's, it's 99th percentile latency, right? Hmm. Which means, you know, 99, basically 99% of the requests or 99.9% of the requests, whichever, you know, what, which how depends on how rigorous you want it to be has to be within a certain amount of latency, right? So one of the, to be more specific, like you would typically define an SLA for stream processing as an, okay, that is within kind of the 99.9%, you know, percentile latency. Um, and that would, and that number would be like, um, you know, chosen for basically almost 99.9% of the time, my latency needs to be below that. Um, and that's my, basically my, you know, the tolerance, right? For, mm. uh, for, for, for my stream processing system. Hal, what were you, uh, what were you going to ask? Uh, we have some latency on your question here. <laughs> so no, this went in a, in a great direction. So I'm, I'm glad you kind of expanded on that. We um, need to say latency one more time to make sure this is still technical. No, I'm not going to say latency one more time. We already said it enough times. You just did. <laughs> so, um, I don't remember what I was going to say next now. Thank you very much. No. Uh, so PubSub, um, I wanted to talk a little bit more pub, about PubSub and I wanted to know, um, and I was actually like familiar with PubSub way back in the day. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of, uh, XMPP, the, the messenger protocol that was, uh, uh, was it XML markup pub? I, I forget what it stands for, but even though I was on the standards body for this protocol, but anyway, 
so I've, I've been familiar with and, and around that space for a while. I'm kind of curious as to um, what are the, the kind of the challenges being solved today? You know, how, how is the, and I'm thinking it's probably around scale. I mean, and, and what do people need to understand that is happening in, in, in this? Because I, you know, it's, I think you, you know, AMQP, MQTT, you know, there, there's a lot of these types of protocols. It's not new. You know, every cloud service provider has a service. Um, you know, isn't this just taken care of for you? Or, you know, like I, I imagine this is actually quite a hard problem. And I want to understand kind of like, you know, what are those yes. challenges like? Yes. Yeah, so to, uh, to, uh, to basically design and implement a system like Apache Pulsar is very challenging. But we offer what is, you know, good about a system like Apache Pulsar or any good, you know, kind of message bus system is you should provide a, you know, relatively easy to use interface, right? It should be easy for the, you know, uh, the user of the platform to use, you know, the system, right? And to basically be very intuitive about the semantics and results uh, of the APIs they use when they interact with the system. So that should be, you know, you know, very easy, but there are many challenges um, in basically designing kind of a modern, you know, message bus uh, uh, platform today. And what really kind of separates, um, you know, what we have today versus what people had, you know, say like 10, 20 years ago, right? Message buses have been around for a while, you know, in many different kind of areas, but they tend to uh, be kind of a, a single tenant, single node, not very distributed. And you really have a, a, a very large, uh, a very low cap on the amount of, you know, data that can go through, you know, that, that type of system. So the challenges really arise when the, the challenges really arise when we basically reach a, uh, reach a situation where there's just a ton of data in the area of big data, right? There's just a ton of data and how we basically are able to, you know, uh, process and serve, how we're able to serve that data that massive amount of data to wherever it needs to go. So let me talk about some specific challenges in Pulsar, right? One is definitely the scale, right? It's, it should be able to handle massive scale and it should be able to be able to, uh, uh, to scale very easily. What, what I mean by that is not necessarily just saying, oh, I'm gonna throw more you know, CPU or memory into a specific node, into a specific machine by just increasing the raw, you know, compute power of a machine is I should be able to add just more machines into the cluster. And I'm, I, I will be able to get higher overall throughput. So no longer we're in kind of the realm of scaling up. We are in the realm scaling of distributed, sy distributed systems where we really are focused on scaling out. Mm -hmm. So, so all the, so while that is kind of a, a cool concept, we have to deal with all the problems that arises with now basically scaling out and independent kind of, you know, entities or machines working with each other, right? And a lot of that has to deal with, you know, fault tolerance and reliability in case of, you know, what if one of the machines goes down, you know, or some, there's a network partition, how do we, zone. <laughs> exactly, how do we, how, how do we basically still uh, keep the user's data safe you know, what are our guarantees, right? And what are the trade-offs we are, we are willing to make to basically trade off, you know, durability, you know, availability and so on and, 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 so, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, so a lot of, you know, the, the complicated problems arises, especially with is, is fault tolerance, right? It's no longer, 
you know, we're also building a system that needs to be, you know, uh, you know, fault tolerant and more or less highly available so that we don't incur downtime on our end users. So we have to design, carefully design, carefully implement, you know, all the specific the corner cases and all the fault, you know, faulty scenarios that could happen so that we don't accidentally just, you know, drop users data or something like that. Okay, gotcha. So, mm-hmm. and you mentioned uh, Splunk Stream Processor Service uh, a minute mm-hmm. ago. C- tell me, you know, a little bit uh, about the the impact you might have had on some of our our stream processing products. Mm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So, uh, this kind of, to give a little background, um, like you mentioned, I was part of a startup called Streamlio, right? And we were working on uh, a similar technology as yeah, as SPS or DSP, as we know it back in the day, distributed uh, the data stream processor. We, we were working on our own next generation stream processing system based on Apache Pulsar and so on and so forth. And then we got kind of acquired by Splunk. So one of the first things- Not actually, kind of. No, not kind of. <laughs> Sorry, we got acquired. <laughs> There's no one one foot out of the door. No, okay. we, really, we became we part thoroughly, of the Splunk family. We yeah. became thoroughly part of the Splunk family. Correct. I find myself doing that too all the time. I, I'm like very wishy-washy about things that are very clear facts. <laughs> correct. Um, so one of the first things uh, we did was um, look, like how can we uh, introduce Apache Pulsar to Splunk, right? We were very um, adamant about this new technology. We knew this was the uh, next, uh, the next generation technology in the in the pub subspace, and we wanted Splunk to be able to leverage the full range of capabilities and benefits of Apache Pulsar. Um, so we did some uh, POCs and uh, you know uh, benchmarks with the existing technologies that were used in SPS, more namely Apache Kafka, Kinesis, you know SQS, and so on and so forth. Our uh, you know our the due diligence we did and the benchmarking we did clearly showed you know, a clear advantage of Apache Pulsar in, in numerous regards in terms of COGS and, you know, co- uh, uh, you know, operation costs as well as performance and latency and Pulsar, you know, did much better. So one of the first things I led was actually let's, okay, let's standardize on Apache Pulsar at Splunk for our pub sub. So especially in SPS at that point. So I went in and we ripped out, you know, all these, you know, I would say, you know, competitive, you know, comp- competing technologies, or I'm a little biased. So I'll say, you know, legacy technologies, because they're not as good in my opinion as Apache Pulsar. So we ripped out all these legacy technologies, such as Kafka, you know, Kinesis and SQS, and we replaced all of, you know, those platforms with just by using Pulsar. And they, and mm. they gave many, you know, advantages, just not in terms of, you know, um, what uh, the benefits of Apache Pulsar offered over those those individual legacy platforms I mentioned, but also just look like it, it makes deployment easy because before- Was that like a have, year ago? Like time That was uh, about a year and a half ago. A year yeah. and a half, okay. Yeah, because in the cloud, we were using leveraging Kinesis and on-prem, our deployments were leveraging Apache Kafka. So there's like two different platforms you know, pub cell platforms who are leveraging based on different environments, but now we can consolidate all of that to just use Apache Pulsar. And you would imagine, you know, we would have to write, you know, less code, less, we'll have to do less work for maintenance and deployment. And we can simplify a lot of our, you know, our, our deployment because now we've converged on a single platform versus using different platforms, different technologies, and different environments. Nice. So uh, without, I mean, I sure it would make any sense to go into numbers of systems, but maybe percentage wise, you know, was there a certain, you know, percentage, you know, increase in efficiency or reduction in cost that would, that would make sense to, to share? Um, yes, we actually, 
um, um, my my uh, the, the 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 head of kind of our group messaging as a service at Splunk, Karthik Ramasamy, has actually given quite a few presentations um, on the subject of our basically benchmarking of oh, uh, cool. Apache Kafka versus Apache Pulsar mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, talks, and I think not only within Splunk but also to kind of. Uh, the broader audience and industry. Mm-hmm. I don't, it's been a while. I don't recall the exact numbers. I would have to go check those slides. Um, but good it was to know that we, maybe we'll uh, find a way to stick that in some show notes, uh, a link to that. Talk. Definitely. I can, I can probably send you some slides or even send you um, some recordings on, on YouTube, right. Um, that um, has them giving the talk uh, um, on basically that subject. But in terms of, so we did um, pretty comprehensive, not just in terms of all him talk at, it was not at one of our shows. It was like DockerCon like five years ago or something. Um, uh, I think you might have actually been there with me. I, I, I don't remember. Did you go to DockerCon? Docker. No. It was it was another company, and but I want to say that I remember I saw somebody named Karthik, and then later on mm-hmm. he came to join Splunk, and it was kind of a funny turn yeah. of events. Yeah. But we um, the I can tell you that our benchmark was uh, pretty comprehensive. We not just uh, we did not just compare just raw kind of you know, performance numbers in terms of throughput and latency. We compared also, you know, costs and, uh, you know, uh, not only infrastructure costs, but also management costs. And Apache Pulsar was, um, in terms of actually running on Splunk infrastructure, uh, was a lot more, you know, uh, better performant and more cost effective. And, um, of course, those two, those two things are, you know, related to each other, but Mm-hmm. Both, both based on so you're saying it was so all a numbers thing. You definitely had no emotional bias in this. <laughs> of course, our uh, our team definitely had some emotional bias, but we have to, you know, there's definitely skeptical, you know, people yeah. at Splunk, right? You always have to kind of, you know, have data to back up, you know, decisions made. Find so we, de- we under- exactly, we definitely understood that. So we yeah. really wanted to, you know, come up with, you know, as a impartial, you know, uh, benchmarking and more and, and comprehensive benchmarking as we can to just show like, you know, the architects, uh, other, you know, engineering leaders, look, this is a decision that clearly makes sense, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. For us to migrate from these platforms onto Apache Pulsar. Okay. So, and, and I want to, I want to talk a little bit uh, meta about Pulsar and about open source mm-hmm. and about what you're doing at Splunk because, and, and what you did at Streamlo before um, sure. Splunk is a commercial software company. We make software, mm-hmm. we sell services, but Hey, we make it the software <laughs> and t-shirt <laughs> software. Um, but you're working on an open source project. How does that work? Um, so actually there has been initiatives within Splunk to really be more uh, active and open and open source. Um, so, you know, what we do on an SBS as, and, you know, also in the messaging as a service team is we, you know, work closely with the community, right? We realize, you know, the benefits of, 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 uh, open source community. Like the, 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 the simple, you know, benefit is that, okay, like we contribute to, you know, the community, the community also contributes, back to us, right? They help fix bugs, help implement features that might be, you know, useful for us. And we also, you know, leverage community as a, as a way to, you know, advertise, you know, SPS and products as months, right? Look, you know, uh, uh, there, they, there's, you know, quite a few employees at Splunk are very active in the stream processing space and Apache Pulsar, you know, you know, uh, 
they must be really knowing what they're doing, right? They can attract, first of all, the talent to come work at Splunk at, you know, on this subject, uh, as well as they're significantly contributing and push and moving the needle. You really want to be in a position to be thought of as a thought leader, right? To be a, to be, to be forward thinking as a leader in the area so that, you know, people are like, Oh, you know, Splunk is really invested in stream processing. They, they are active and, you know, in the industry and most notably and clearly in open source. So, you know, it attracts kind of users and, and, and people to really, you know, uh, look into and potentially use technologies, you know, such as SBS. And this is not just done for Apache Pulsar. We also contribute to Apache Flink and also other um, open source projects such as pa Apache Bookkeeper, which Apache Pulsar uses as its storage layer. So we contribute to, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, open source projects are actively, you know, involved in, you know, Apache open source community. It's, you know, a good way, a way to, you know, ad get, get advertisement for Splunk, but also get, uh, allow Splunk to access a really, you know, uh, large and good pool of potential future employees, right? This is where you can meet and attract good engineers to come work at Splunk and, you know, further better your product. So there's a lot of, uh, I, I think, you know, beneficial, uh, you know, win-win relationships between, you know, Splunk and, you know, interacting with the, you know, open source community. Again, like, you know, we're not, you know, leaking Splunk proprietary technology out in open source, just to, just to, just to be clear, like, we're definitely, there's definitely secret sauce, right, that we're keeping in-house, and that's what makes Splunk valuable, right? There's it's ketchup and mayonnaise. Oh. Exactly. <laughs> but, but we're, but, but for these, you know, technologies that, you know, are, you know, a lot are, 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 uh, you know, more generic and, and, and complex, we would like to kind of leverage, you know, uh, the community and people working at other companies to really kind of develop these fundamental, right. Infrastructure level projects so that we're not just on this, you know, we're not taking on this, uh, this humongous or Herculean effort ourselves, uh, to basically develop these products. Like, like I said, these things are super complex, right? Yeah. Yeah. Are super complex. There's there, they require a significant level of, um, of, of experience to operate. So, you know, with the community, we get a lot of help. So, you know, like, like anybody, like we're not, we're not in this, you know, scary, scary journey ourselves, right? There's other people in the journey with us and it really kind of, mm -hmm. you know, helps makes these fund, fundamental, uh, fund, uh, fundamental or infrastructure level, you know, products, uh, better, you know, at, at uh, service or platforms better at that Splunk. So are you, you work on, on our, um, our, our, uh, like our SPS, our, um, uh, data stream processing, uh, product from the engineering side. Mm -hmm. both in, in the, now are you working on it from the cloud side as well as customers that deploy it on premise or are you focused on one area? Yeah. So I've, um, I've, I've worked on, on both sides, but nowadays we tend to um, shift our focus more onto the cloud offering um, as that's kind of a, a company wide uh, initiative is to be more cloud focused, but yes, you know, we, we do um, have on-prem version of SPS. It's, you know, still called the, uh, the, the, the previous name DSP, uh, uh, dis, uh, a, dis, a distributed stream processor. Um, so we do, we, I have worked on basically helping, um, solve issues and, you know, developing the product on that side as, as well. And then the go, go ahead, Hal. 
I was going to go back to Pulsar for a second because you're kind of you're credited with creating some Pulsar features um, like uh, Pulsar functions, I.O. Uh, and there's a, a, a SQL interface. I was kind of curious, you know, are those things that that you're able to develop, you know, uh, while you're here at Splunk or are those things that were mature by the time you came to Splunk? Mm, like as part of your job function? Yeah. Ah, good question. So um, we definitely want to leverage um leverage open source as much as we can, right? The existing functionality as much as we can, but we inevitably run into situations where, you know, what is there in open source maybe meets, you know, 90% or, you know, 80% or whatever measure of what we actually want to do as Splunk. So, you know, we need to basically take that feature in open source that extra 10 or 20% of the way to basically really get it to work to meet the needs of, of Splunk. Right. So that's definitely, you know, uh, one of those things that, uh, that has happened, um, uh, during my tenure here. So one of the additional things we use in Apache Pulsar, we leverage is, you know, uh, Apache, uh, uh, Pulsar IO, which is a connectors framework that's also built on top of the Pulsar functions framework. So we're basically leveraging that framework to uh, in ingress and egress data um, in and out of basically SPS. So there are certain features that we have to implement um, within that framework or have to contribute to open source in that framework to uh, basically you know, get it to work in the way that we want it to work at Splunk, right? One of the features we contributed is a new kind of uh, runtime called the batch source, right? Versus traditionally in Pulse.io, all of our- Batch in stream? Well, it's a little, perhaps it's not the, it's not the best name, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's basically a source that goes, is, goes out and, and reads things in a more of a periodic fashion, reads out, tries to basically ingress data that's more static versus in a stream fashion kind of uh, sense. So originally the Pulse.io framework was designed to just basically read you know, uh, streams of data and ingest it into Pulsar. But at Splunk, there are, you know, various constraints and various use cases that, you know, we want to do this in a more periodic and batch fashion. So one of the use cases is, you know, say reading from an object store like S3, right? Or, you know, reading from a large file. Um, you usually, you typically don't want to, there's not, you, you don't want to just, just be constantly pulling the file for, mm -hmm. you know, new data or, or whatnot in more of the stream facts, the streaming sense, you kind of want to just periodically check, right? To yeah. say, and that's good enough to say, okay, like do I have more data in the file or do I have more files I want to ingest and so on and so forth. So, you know, we've definitely, there's definitely a lot of kind so of I'm, use I'm cases gonna, that- I want to stop you, to, I want to geek out sure. on that one particular part because I can relate mm -hmm. this to what Splunk um, admins and uh, you know would, are probably familiar yeah. with, which is the evolution of our AWS, uh, you know, add-on and, uh, and the ability push to versus pull, pull data. Yeah, so you got push versus pull, polling. Um, you could take an S3 object, you could watch it with SQS and have that let you know that you need to go pull. You could yep. uh, send it over Kinesis, you know, Firehose. There's a bunch of different options. What is Pulsar doing better or different than those previous options? So basically, that's a good question. What a what a what a lot of the is offered by you know the Pulsar functions framework and you know indirectly by the Pulsar I/O framework that's based on Pulsar functions is it allows the user to really focus on writing the business logic, the logic to actually just go fetch the data. Mm -hmm. So the framework itself handles a lot of the things such as state management right? 
periodically you might want to, you know, checkpoint where you've read to, how much you've read. So it gives you, you know, uh, a fault tolerant, you know, performant, you know, stateful interface for you to basically checkpoint anything or store any state that you might need. Also what it provides is, you know, fault tolerance, you know, uh, manageability and scale. Like, let me go one by one, like in terms of, uh, in terms of fault tolerance, like the platform is in charge of how to run and where to run, you know, your business, you know, your code to fetch the data. It's not up it, the, the user, the developer, the connector developer does not need to figure out these details, uh, these operational details about how to execute their code. The framework will do that. And, uh, in a reliable fashion for them. Also, in terms of scale, there are basically tools that can be easily uh, used to scale the number of base to scale uh, the your rate of and your rate of ingest or your rate of egress by simply running more instances of a connector and so on and so forth. So you can easily call out to some sort of API and say, oh, instead of running one instance, I can run many instances of that and the framework will be in charge will take care of the scheduling and running and all those other things i've mentioned okay. to basically you know execute that code in a very uh parallel and reliable fashion okay no that makes sense i remember trying to build a system like this oh, out of bailing wire and tape uh, it might have been at the time um at um previous employer where we had it was a retail establishment and they had 2500 stores and we didn't need to use, didn't need to do something once we had to do something, you know, 2,400 times, you know, something. And, and that, that was often, you know, for example, polling systems for, uh, you know, health metrics, uh, you know, having to have that complete within five second time frame, because that was the protocol constraints. And we had to multiply that out. You can't do that with a single system. So I totally understand kind of the challenges of that. It sounds like the, the space has come a long way since, since I was involved in that. So I'm really kind of excited to hear, about why that's you know evolved over time um as we kind of you know uh look to wrap up here what's coming in the future what what things excite you about this space generally either pub sub or uh you know flink pulsar or you know or abstract without revealing anything we're not allowed to reveal about our roadmap <laughs> yeah but he can talk yeah, about his open source head, hat on yeah exactly yeah, man talk so about open source yeah yeah, there's definitely, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, interesting features that we're looking to implement um, in Apache Pulsar, you know, relating, you know, around kind of auto, auto sharding, you know, topics and so hey, on language. and so forth. <laughs> <laughs> define, define sharding. Auto, par auto partitioning, maybe that's a better way. So, you know, one of the ways to say, you know, to scale out your throughput is to, you know, one of the typical techniques, you know, in big data systems is to shard your data, right? Instead of writing everything into, into one shard or one partition, you write it into multiple independent shards so that you can basically scale your throughput. So currently in Pulsar, like, you know, that's a static number. Someone determines right beforehand how many you know, partitions or shards I want. But in the future, we would like to basically have some sort of feature that automatically determines that based on your throughput, right? Say your throughput at the beginning is 10 megabytes a second. One shard is good enough. In the future, it goes up somehow to 100. It will automatically basically charge your data in a way that we can keep up with basically that throughput so that the user does not need to manually tweak how many shards that you know um that that is needed to sustain a certain amount of throughput so those are there's a there's a lot of challenges and and features like that especially when we talk about how to you know auto shard as well as maintain you know ordering when that happens right when 
when, when you, when you, when you create more partitions, like you still want to maintain the process ordering and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of challenges in that. And just in, you know, what I'm also excited on is, you know, at Splunk, we, you know, we, um, we operate certain technologies at, um, we, we basically support, uh, some of some, some use cases that have tremendous scale. Like I don't want to, you know, reveal any particular customer or anything like that, but 10 I think megabytes. <laughs> yes. And in, in 1940, uh, yes. that'd be a big deal. <laughs> I used two floppy disks. The last time I heard a specific number from Splunk announced publicly, I want to say it was on, I, I want to say that Doug Merritt or, or sender or Tim at some point had said that we processed, you know, on the order of petabytes a day for some of our largest customers. That's probably the last yep. specific number I recall. I don't know if you remember anything differently, guys. Yep. That's um, basically, we, we do have use cases are in, in that range as well. Um, and for stream processing, that's really, that's really record breaking. To be honest, I've been at worked at many different places, interact with many, you know, different, um, you know, uh, engineers that, that are at different places, you know, that level of, you know, uh, that level of throughput and data we can handle is record breaking for not only Apache Pulse, but also for a spark, like we're definitely pushing, you know, the limits here of what, you know, is, is, is possible with stream processing. And we have developed a lot of, you know, I would say, you know, ingen ingen ingenious and clever ways to get around some of the scaling problems we have faced to basically satisfy, you know, this large, you know, these, these large throughput demands of some of the, you know, customers we interact with. So it's definitely, you know, um, you know, what excites me is because we have these use cases, we can, you know, we are able to think about clever ways and really push, you know, the technology forward, right. To be more scalable and more performant. Um, so that's definitely, you know, uh, what, what really excites me to, you know, work on these things as Splunk. Awesome. Well, uh, Jerry, I just have one more question, and I want to know what commission do you get every time someone forks Pulsar on GitHub? <laughs> uh, there's a you know a, a, a secret society in which I get no option. <laughs> um, perhaps just a, you know a, a theoretical or conceptual pat on the back, and, mm. and maybe a, a thumbs plus from um, you know um, so, from somebody, but just you know just a satisfaction look that you've, I was with Pulsar from the, you know, from very you know early on when it was open sourced at Yahoo. And even, you know, when it was closed sourced at Yahoo, I interacted with, with it, um, you know, in a limited sense, but just to see, you know, the project grow from, you know, just being started from one company to, you know, being used by, you know, so many different people. It is, it is tremendous, right? The journey we've come and just, you know, the satisfaction of, you know, Oh, I, I wrote some code and now it's useful to, you know, a bunch of people, hopefully, you know, making society and, you know, humanity better, who knows, like, you know, but who knows, right. But hopefully let's just say they, they are doing that and it's for the benefit of society in general. It's just, you know, a satisfying, you know, you know, feeling right. There's, you know, not, not necessarily any sort of financial, you know, gains, but just, you know, that I've, I made a difference. You know, you feel like you've contributed, you know, you're, you're, you've contributed something useful, you know, to, to industry and society. That's the reward, right? Is knowing that every time someone forks, you've made the world just one shard better. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. Well, Hal, I, I, I feel, I feel very pulsard. I feel very uh, content. 
uh, here. Any, any final thoughts uh, on your side? Yeah, go oh. like the project on GitHub. We need more Ooh, stars. There we go. Because there you go. It really is. Yeah, that's like you you just patted Jerry on the back. All right. Thanks, yeah. Jerry, for, for coming to spend some time with us. Uh, super fascinating topic. And best of luck with it. Thank you very much. And thank you guys for having me on today. It's been a thank pleasure. You. Uh, and uh, to all our fans out there, stay tuned for our next episode. Like James Bond, we will return. Um, and with that, Happy spunking. <laughs>